Well, if you would turn to Psalm 8 this morning, the 8th Psalm. I usually always do an incarnation message during the Christmas season. I just love this time of year. Uh, I love that it seems like even in the secular world, there's no choice but to focus on Jesus at least a little bit. And so I will plan on doing that next Sunday morning. But this morning we're going to be back in Psalm 8. Just to remind you as you turn there that the book of Psalms is 150 individual psalms or songs that were sung by the Jews. And really the only divisions per se are uh, in five sections or five books. The first book is Psalm 1 through 41. And as we've clearly seen so far, the theme is human suffering and the need for divine deliverance. And what's interesting about Psalm 8 is if you just read it on its face, it doesn't seem like there's any suffering in this passage at all. It really uh, seems to be a psalm of praise. But all the psalms prior to this, have we not seen the psalmist begging God for deliverance from something? Well, in, in Psalm 9, it picks right back up with suffering. So why does Psalm 8 seem so out of place? I can promise you there's actually more suffering in Psalm 8 than any other psalm that we're going to see in book one. And it's so amazing because it's not about our suffering, it's about the suffering of Christ. And that's why there is no suffering on our part in this text because the suffering of Christ has taken it away. Uh, that's why Psalm 8 is just such a, really a jewel. And uh, we're going to see Psalm 8 is quoted at least three times in the New Testament. We're actually going to take the time to look at two of those. Because uh, without that, it's really hard to understand. Now, we know, and I've said this many times, but when you read the Bible, you really need to ask yourself, what would this have meant to the original audience that was being spoken to or written to? But there's certain psalms that are so full of Christ and so full of prophecy that there's really no way they could have gotten the full grasp of it. This is certainly one of those psalms. Psalm 22 is another example. In fact... In Psalm 8, I really believe the Jews probably would have connected it to the first Adam in creation and the dominion that you know, God gave him over the animals and the earth and things like that. But we know now, having the New Testament as a commentary, that it's really about the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took back dominion that was lost by the first Adam. And so, <clears throat> with that in mind, let's go ahead and... Uh, read the text, and, and really I want to give you more, one more thing to look at even before we read the text, uh, but we actually do, I know I talked about this even at the banquet Friday night, but there's actually an inclusio here, and I've got to say this, uh, Pastor Sins, uh, he's a card anyway, and he, you know, first of all, any pastor whose last name is Sins, you know he's got problems anyway. But afterwards, he came up to me and he said, That's, he said, what was that word you used? I said, inclusio. He said, I, I've never heard of that in my life. And he said, my son was sitting next to me. He goes, Dad, what's an inclusio? He goes, I don't know, just listen. <laughs> and he said, he said, that makes me feel really bad about my Bible college education when this guy knows something and he got his seminary training at a trailer park somewhere in Alabama. <laughs> so, uh, but... Uh, uh, but anyway, an inclusio, as I said, is like two bookends. It, 
it focuses on one area. And another way that you can look at inclusio, especially in a place like Psalm 8, it's like two pieces of sandwich bread with all the good stuff in the middle. And we see this at the beginning and end. Let's just read the first and last verse, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. It begins by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set the glory above the heavens. And it closes in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. So there's an inclusio there. And you, so you know that by beginning and ending the psalm with, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is in thy name in all the earth, you know that it's going to spend the entire middle explaining why his name is excellent in all the earth. That's the benefit sometimes of an inclusio. So you know that they're pointing back to each other. We need to pay special attention to what it's saying. So with that in mind, let's read the text. <coughs> Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who has set the glory above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the pass of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you in the precious and lovely and holy name of Jesus. God, we just thank you for salvation in Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, thank you for freedom and forgiveness of sin. Uh, Lord, I'm so thankful for all that were able to be here today. I know there's some that are sick and just some that, that couldn't be here for one reason or another. I pray that you bless them in a special way. Be with those that are watching and listening online. And uh, Lord, I just ask that Christ would be magnified. Uh, Lord, that you would hide me behind the shadow of the cross. And Lord, just show us where we are in our lives and take us where we need to be. And we give these things to you. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. <coughs> so I want to look at the thought this morning of the suffering servant and the satisfied saints. And we look at this psalm and, and really we do have to ask the question, how can the suffering of the servant satisfy the saints? There's a few things here I want to look at and, <clears throat> and then we're going to go back and forth uh, with the New Testament. But uh, the first thing I want you to see here is his handiwork. Um, look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, and by the way, I want to point out, as I do so many times, but it's great to see it side by side like this. If you notice in our English translation here that the first Lord is all caps, the second Lord is only one capital of the first letter, that's because the, the first name is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the most sacred name to the Jews. And then Lord, with the lower uh, case letters, is Adonai, or Master is what that means. So he's giving him the personal name of God and the title all together. Oh my God, my Master. That's literally what that's saying there. How excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. And I want to skip to verse 3 for sake of focus here. 
He says, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? This reminds me of Psalm 19 and verse 1 which says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament or the heavens showeth his handiwork. And so yes, God has revealed himself specifically in scripture. We're thankful for that. And there, there is no specific revelation of God outside of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. But God has revealed Himself generally in creation and in our conscience that He's given every individual as we're created in His image. Even fallen man understands the moral law. But also uh, in creation we see this. It honors God. It Creation screams of a Creator. And I, I was thinking to myself this morning of times in my life where I was just overwhelmed by the creation of God. I was overwhelmed by the beauty and just how big God is and, and equally how small that I am. Have you ever uh, been somewhere that you can go in your mind and you just, man, you were just overwhelmed. You were just in awe. Uh, I thought about a few of these and I'm sure we could be here forever talking about these, but just to throw a few out there. And I, I want to give you some examples because I'm going to prove a point when I'm done. <clears throat> but... You know, even this year we got to go to Bryce Canyon and all the, the incredible colors and the shapes of the rocks and just the, the vastness of the canyon itself. And, and me and Wesley actually got to hike it. It was, it was overwhelming. You know, you look at something like that as a Christian and you say, how could anybody look at something like that and come to the conclusion there's no God? I mean, I don't think anybody's ever stood there in awe and said, man, it's just amazing how all this came out of nothing. If it is, they have missed the forest for the trees. I think about years ago, I've been to quite a few remote places in Mexico on different mission trips, and I've been to places that just weren't anywhere near any kind of town. There was no light at all. And you could just lay out in the sand at night and look up at the stars, and I mean, they were just so... You just, it's like you just almost just touch them. It was just amazing. Uh, I've, never, I've never seen it like that before or since. Just um, breathtaking. Or... Uh, <coughs> In Alabama, there's a few places that we really love. And one of those, you know, Alabama really only has one mountain. It's fairly flat, but you get to the northeastern corner uh, near the Tennessee, the Smoky Mountains up there, and you kind of get in the foothills. But there's one mountain right there in the northeastern corner. It's Mount Cheha. It's only about 3,000 feet, but what's amazing about it is everything else around it is flat. And there's one place, it's called Pulpit Rock. Like, just like the pulpit. It's called Pulpit Rock. And it's like a, a, a rock that looks like a ramp. It's about eight feet wide. And if you're brave enough, you can walk out there to the very edge of just nothingness. And I've been there in the fall where all of those trees were just an ocean of yellow and orange and red. And I mean, you just stand, it's just breathtaking. It's amazing. Um, but, you know, even, um, even the first time we came to Cache Valley in January of 2020, the first time we came through Sardin Canyon, it was in January. So everything was snow-capped, and, and we, we drove. Uh, we got just to where you, you know, come around the corner, and you can actually see Cache Valley, and we're like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. You know? Could God call us here? And unfortunately for you, He did. And so, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, to me, and this is the last one I'll mention, one of my, I guess my special places you could say is 
Talladega National Forest in Alabama. It's about 20 minutes from where I pastored. Yeah, that forest is, is like 144,000 acres. It's never seen a saw. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about the, there's white oaks and red oaks in there that are three and 400 years old. You, three people couldn't even wrap around some of them. Just amazing. Um, and I'll go back there and uh, just walk forever because I hunt back there and you kind of got to get away from everything. And You know, I, I, what I love to do is I would go there in the morning time before the sun came up to get to where I was hunting. It was just pitch black dark. And some days the wind wouldn't even blow, and if you stopped, you couldn't hear anything. You couldn't hear a thing. And I would get up in my tree climber. It's like a platform, and I would, it had a seat on it, and I would get like 25, 30 feet up before the sun came up. And, and just, again, it's dead. You would think you were the only one alive in the world if you were sitting out there. But this, all of a sudden you can kind of see the, the sun coming over the horizon. There's a moment where there's all the purples and reds and oranges of the horizon, and it's like somebody flips a switch. And every bird in the forest comes alive, starts singing to God. And it's, it really is, it's, it's amazing. And me talking about it can't do it justice. But, uh, but you look at that and you just feel small. And you understand just, just how big God is. And you say, how could a God like that ever even pay attention to somebody like me? That's really what is being said in this psalm right here. Uh, and, and certainly I think we ought to have that kind of awe. But what's amazing to me here, and I love this, the way this is worded, in verse 3, when he says, I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. You think about just how big the universe is, and we really have, we, we can't even understand how big it is. And it reminds me about the creation account in Genesis 1.16 where it almost seems to say in passing... <laughs> He made the stars also, just like it was nothing. And if you think about the universe and the stars and the moon and creation being the works of His fingers, think about how big God is. I mean, I know that's more of a physical analogy, but we just can't even comprehend and recognize just how big He is. And it ought to lead us to ask this natural question in verse 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And even more personal, Lord, who am I? that you're mindful of me. Now, if we aren't overwhelmed by the greatness of God, at least at some point in our life, if we're not overwhelmed by the greatness of God, we've got the wrong God. He's too small. He can satisfy the saints because of who He is and because His handiwork proves it. It proves the excellency of His name. But hold on to that thought because that brings us directly to the contrast in point number two. <clears throat> he, the, the suffering servant can satisfy the saints because of his handiwork and what it means and what it speaks to, the excellency of his name. But number two, this is what we have to get, and this is really the crux of what we're going to talk about this morning, but also because of his humility. Look at verse two. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, that's just a a wording that speaks to young children and younger children. Thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest steal the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Uh, for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. 
Now there's verse 2 is quoted by Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at that in just a second. But verse 5 is a direct quote from the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to look at that also. In fact, uh, let's just go ahead. What I want you to do, we will come back to Psalm 8. But, so go ahead and put your marker there so we can get back quickly. But I want you to go ahead over to Matthew chapter 21. It's good for us to see certain things in the Bible. In fact, some things are so important, I don't want you to be content with just hearing me talk about it. I want you to see it for yourself. Matthew chapter 21. Now in the context here, the day prior, Jesus has made His triumphant entry into Jerusalem where the people are shouting, Hosanna, thou son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, And then this is, in Matthew 21, this is the next day. Jesus has gone to the temple and He has been healing people in the temple. And now the children begin to worship Him. Look at uh, Matthew 21, beginning verse 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them uh, that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. That term, it is written, means he's quoting something from the Old Testament. And here uh, specifically, is actually quoted in Isaiah 56 and verse 7. But he goes on to say in verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have you never read, here it is, have you never read, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. There's a couple of things that had to be pointed out here. First of all, Um, Jesus never stopped these children from worshiping Him, did He? In fact, He commended them to the angry Pharisees. Well, why is that? It's because He's God. And if He wasn't God, then He's robbing God of what only belongs to Him. If if somebody were to accept worship and actually not be God, (coughs) they would be robbing what uh, rightfully belongs to God. And so, you know, these children have probably heard what the adults in the group said when he wrote in Jerusalem, they're repeating what they've heard and and surely they don't completely understand what they're saying, but it really doesn't matter because they're right. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. And so understand that Jesus uh, is in crucifixion week here. He's only a few days away from being crucified. And this is a direct quote from Psalm 8 and verse 2. But it gets into even more detail. In fact, go back to Psalm 8. We'll read something and we'll go straight to Hebrews 2. (coughs) He combines that quote from uh, Jesus in Matthew 21 with Hebrews 2. Uh, Let's begin in verse 4 of Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man. Now, so we know who we're talking about, don't we? Who is the son of man? It's Jesus. And the Son of Man that thou visitest him. Now this is why the Jews would have only thought that it was pertaining to 
the first Adam and his race, but we know clearly that it, he's not talking about that Adam once we get to verse 5. He says, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. And so, um, take this verse 5 and put a pen in it, and let's go to Hebrews 2. <clears throat> we find out why he was crowned with honor and glory. We find out uh, why he was praised during crucifixion week. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. <clears throat> and Again, we will go back to Psalm 8 and finish there, but I want you to see this. Hebrews 2 and verse 5. It says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? We just read that. Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But we now, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now we know exactly who Psalm 8 is talking about. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, there it is, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom all are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, uh, to make the captive of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And so here we see the humility of Christ. And so the reason that we don't find any suffering in Psalm 8 is because it's all about the suffering servant. It's all about the suffering of Jesus Christ. He humbled Himself and took upon the form of a servant. It's not that He was uh, not God. He was. It's not that He was less God. It's just that that eternal God took upon Him human flesh. Uh, the incarnate Word, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, as John chapter 1 and verse 14 said. And so, I love this. Think about this. The God who hung the stars in the sky is the same God who chose to hang His head in death on a cross so that we might be saved. The God that hung the stars voluntarily hung His head in death on a cross. It's, it's just unthinkable to know and to understand and that the God that created everything entered into human flesh and walked among His creatures. Now, <clears throat> I know that they didn't really get this until after the resurrection, and even after the resurrection, He walked the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, but can you imagine actually understanding that fact and, and seeing Jesus in bodily form in the flesh and knowing that was the one who did all of this. <laughs> that was the one who created me knowing that was the one that died for me and rose from the dead three days later. We didn't get that opportunity back then, but we will one day. We'll see Him just as He is. Aren't you looking forward to that? So we do see suffering in Psalm 8. In fact, we see more suffering in Psalm 8 than anything else because nobody ever suffered like Jesus. 
Nobody ever died like Jesus. Yes, there were other people that were crucified. It was a, a common criminal's death. But He did it while He was wearing our sin and while the wrath of God the Father was being poured on Him for that sin. We can't even begin to imagine what that was like. And so, <coughs> what an amazing sacrifice. What, uh, what an amazing show of humility. And this is one thing I was kind of thinking about as I was going over these things in my mind. If you're like me, you have never purposely chosen any suffering that you've ever been through, have you? Now, I know that sometimes we have to make hard choices, but the nature of that hard choice is that we have to make that choice. I'm talking about, I have never volunteered, I have never signed up for suffering on purpose. Now, you might have, but don't tell me about it because I just think you're weird, amen? But Jesus chose to enter into our sin and our suffering, and He did it not for Him, but for us. It's unthinkable. There's, listen, God had no obligation at all to do what He did. Jesus Christ had no obligation at all to come to this world and die for sinners, but He did it because of what a loving God He is. Again, who are we, Lord, that you are mindful of us? Now, if that doesn't bring peace to your soul, something's wrong. I mean, it really ought to bring comfort. If you're really saved, if you're a child of God, it ought to bring comfort to you when you're overwhelmed by the things that we've been talking about. Because He's a good God, and He's... I've said this before, but He's, he's a big God, but He's not so big that He can't condescend to where we are and be a personal Savior and a personal God to us. The saints are satisfied because the Creator was crucified. He humbled Himself and took on the form of a servant and came to where we are and died on the cross for our sin. Very quickly, let's go back to Psalm 8 and we'll <coughs> begin to come in for a landing. Psalm 8, verse 5. Third thing I want you to know is the saints can be satisfied in the suffering servant because not only because of his humility but also because of his honor. Look at verse 5. For thou hast made him a little, a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the pass of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. You know, what we just read, really, even though this is not quoted directly in Philippians 2, the commentary is undeniable. And I think, uh, you don't have to turn here, but Psalm 2, <coughs> verses 5 through 11, gives such a great commentary on what we just read. Listen to the words here. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now listen, this is what we just uh, read in, in Philippians 2. This is not God somehow giving people a, a second chance at the judgment. I, I've heard a lot of people talk about that in this area for certain. Uh, that this is somehow a, a second chance at the judgment and you know, eventually everybody is going to be saved and, and everybody is going to proclaim the name of Christ. Listen, this is not proclaiming Christ for salvation. This is proclaiming Christ in condemnation at the great white throne judgment. And let me say this while I'm here. Can you imagine, talking about a big God, talking about an overwhelming experience, can you imagine being a lost sinner, standing before Christ at the great white throne judgment, about to be cast into the lake of fire. He knows every detail about your life, every, every dark secret, everything said in private, every, uh, every sin that you thought was kept hidden, and you're seeing Christ in His unbridled glory. It, it, talk about a terrifying experience. So terrifying, in fact, that every knee is going to bow. Think about that for a second. Hitler's going to bow. Charles Manson's going to bow. Mao is going to bow. I mean, it doesn't matter. The, the most wicked leader you can think of, the, the most vocal atheist that you've ever heard of, and everybody in between are going to bow to the very Christ that they have dedicated their life to hating. Can you imagine the fear and the overwhelming power that would drive them to their knees and profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Wow. Wow. I would much rather be in awe of His great salvation than His great judgment, wouldn't you? But here's the thing. If Christ had just experienced death, we would have no hope. But Christ didn't just experience death, He conquered it. And because Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, He is seated at the right hand in power and majesty, and He will return one day. And the thing is, if you know Jesus Christ, what I just said and what we've looked at this morning, this should be a great source of comfort to you. I mean, if we know that Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection on the cross for sin, if we know that's enough, all this is, man, this brings comfort to me. My God's in charge. Nobody else is. Not in the spirit world or the actual world. Uh, nobody is going to trump God. That, that brings great comfort to me. Um, but if you don't know Him, it ought to terrify you. Because you're going to be one of those at the great white throne judgment who didn't confess Him as Lord and Savior in this life. You never submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And so you will proclaim Him as Christ in condemnation. But let me say this too as we close. Everything we've talked about ought to instill within us a great sense of responsibility to serve the Lord with dedication and humility. I mean, I mean, think about this for a second. What greater, knowing how big and powerful and awesome God is, what greater cause is there to live for? What, what's better to live for than Jesus Christ? You name one thing. 
Not one thing could you accomplish in this life that you could so much as even take to the grave with you. And yet we find a way to elevate the temporary, don't we? Over and above the eternal. What, what greater accomplishment is there than serving that God? What greater life is there than living for that God? You know, when I was growing up, the, the types of churches, many of them, not all, but a lot of them that I was associated with seemed to have a common thread in their preaching, and that thread was that it was very moralistic. Do this, don't do this, do that, don't do that. Wear this, don't wear that. Now listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't have standards. I've got them. I've got plenty of them. The Bible's very clear about a lot of them. It's not even a personal conviction as it is, hey, this is what God says and we need to do that. But that was always kind of the, the end in and of itself. And I found that if I tried to do those things just because that was in the rule book and that's the, you know, the, the check that I had to, to check to be a good Christian, I found that it could be rather exhausting. But when I realized and I began to study for myself and I, I got in the Word of God and I, I saw just how big God is, it became a whole lot easier because I was no, I was no longer you know, living the Christian life because it was just the thing to do or I was supposed to do that now and, oh, I'm a church member and, oh, what will these people think if I'm not doing this or I'm doing that? No, it was just, hey, he's worthy. That's the greatest motivation that anybody could have. He's worthy. He died for me and rose from the dead in the past and I'm going to see him in the future and I sure would love to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant, enter into the joy. Wouldn't you like to hear that? What better thing could we possibly live for? The problem is, is so many times we've, we've got such a low view of God, and I've seen this, listen, I've seen this over and over and over and over again. So many youth, they make their way through the church, and obviously they're going to be in church as long as their parents take them to church. But as soon as they get out, it's kind of like, again, you can't find them with a coon dog and a GPS. Why is that? probably because they were just living vicariously through their parents. They, they did what they were told. And now that they're not under their parents to tell them anymore, there's nothing inside of them that says, hey, this, this is what I need to do. And that's one thing, and I've really tried to tell my kids this. I said, listen, as long as you're in my house, you're going to go to church with us. But I said, don't ever get the idea that you're doing this just to please me. Because one of these days... You're going to be out of my house and you're going to have to make your own decisions and I want you to worship God because you love God and you want to live for God and you're just not doing it because, oh, what's daddy going to think? That ain't going to be good enough. It ought to, listen, just like Derek talked about this morning, true religion is more than just skin deep. False religion will change some things on the outside, but it will not awaken that inner man. It will not regenerate and change that inner man. It will not... Give that person a new heart. And so really like we say in the South, all you're really doing is putting lipstick on a pig. It doesn't change anything. But true religion, undefiled before the Father, it changes a person on the inside and that works its way out with fear and trembling in the way that we live our life. If there's a true root, there will be fruit. And so again, who are you living for? What are you living for? Because the saints can be satisfied because the Savior suffered 
We can be satisfied in who He is as seen in His handiwork. We can be satisfied in the, in the fact that He humbled Himself and took on the form of a servant and died for our sin. We can be comforted and satisfied in His honored position and where He is right now, ruling and reigning from the throne, allowing evil to have its day to accomplish His purposes, and then one day He's going to put all that down. Uh, again, I, I just... I love to preach a big Christ. But you know what? I find it's really easy when you preach through books of the Bible because the Bible talks about a big Christ. Right. It's on every page. And so, again, who are you living for? What, what, what gets you up in the morning? What, what is it that governs your life and your decision and your passions? Because there is nothing greater than living for the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can't do that if you don't know Him as Lord and Savior. And if you don't know Him, I would encourage you to trust Him today. Repent and believe the gospel. But if you are saved and something else has distracted your attention, hey, lay it down at the foot of the cross and go on. Let's live for Him because He's worthy. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Thy name in all the earth.